Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 310 recording on Thursday, May 2nd. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with, with Jen Northington. I almost said Rebecca Chisca. <laughs> even was reading it. And still, the R kind of tried to sneak out of there. And we're coming to you from bookrad.com. Rebecca's on vacation, so I enlisted Jen to come help me. And I'm glad we, we didn't even know this, but we've got Jen... We've got Jen um, uh, centric topics a little bit yeah. to come out here, especially. So I'm going to be leaning on you heavily in the first segment of the show. But one thing I don't need to lean heavily on you for is to rant about <laughs> and pricing. It's been a while, but I thought I, I get, um, I know I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I get emails uh, through the, the podcast uh, email account when people will link to ridiculous ebook pricing dissymmetries and I will affirm them by responding, yes, that makes no sense. And it's been a while since I came across one. And I don't actually buy that many ebooks anymore. Um, my digital book buying is largely audiobooks. Um, if I'm reading an ebook anymore, I'm usually through Libby. And if I'm needing to buy a new book, I tend to buy in print these days. So for those of you who have a chart of my buying habits on your wall, update those a little bit. <laughs> and uh, you can find I'm buying fewer and fewer ebooks. But it came where. I was looking at this book called The Alpine Apprentice. It's a memoir. It's, an, it's a university press. Um, I can't remember the, the woman's name who wrote it, but it's about being sent away to Swiss boarding school, which is something I've always sort of been interested in. Like, you hear these stories about, like, then my parents sent me to Swiss boarding school, or I once sent this, and I was like, and so I was like, I'm into this. I want to check this out. First of all, there's no audiobook, because that's the first, like, memoirs anymore I like to do on audio. Um, just do. So I was like, all right, well, what's the ebook situation? My, my local, the Multnomah County Library System doesn't have an ebook. I'm like, all right, well, maybe this one I'll just suck it up and buy it. If I can't get the way I want to read it, um, but I still want to read it this way, I do. So I go to check out um, on, uh, there's this website that sells a bunch of books. You might have heard of it. I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> anyway, the paperback is uh, $17.62, and the ebook was $17.17. Hmm. And I don't like that, Jennifer Northington. <laughs> I don't like that one bit. <laughs> so here I'm here to tell you that whatever happened, what a sixty cent discount to get it mailed to me, and I have whatever the you know the service where they give you the thing and it comes to you faster. I have that, so it doesn't even include you know I'm not paying extra for shipping, uh, and it's sixty cents different. And I cannot for the life of me figure this out why this is happening. This is a university press. Maybe they don't. I don't know the economics of you. Listen, I don't know the economics of most publishers really. Like when it really comes down to it, like I understand there's PLs. I really don't understand how it works when it comes right down to it. So doubly, I doubly don't understand how academic presses work. Um, but I cannot, for the life of me, figure out a. It's the, it's sixty cents discount, but seventeen bucks for an ebook mm. just is a rough spot. And maybe this is what they want. Maybe they don't want me buying the ebook. That's the only. That's the only thing I can come to figure out at this point is they really would prefer that I didn't buy the ebook. That's where I think. What else can I get from this price? Yeah. Um, so there I am. So don't worry. 
the fires are still burning, <laughs> even though I haven't ranted about ebooks for a while. Um, that's my secret. I'm always ranting about <laughs> ebooks. Um, to, to quote, probably my favorite line from the Marvel MCU to this point. Um, so there we go. Shoot me an email. I'm always here to hear your or see your found ebook travesties uh, when it comes to pricing. Shoot us email podcast at. Um, bookriot.com. You don't buy ebooks, do you? I actually you, you, do. You, you, I do. You do? You do buy them. Yeah, sometimes I do. I have bought, what have I bought recently? So Talia Hibbert is a okay. romance author who's self-published currently, and she doesn't have any print books. She There are well, literally there none. And also my library doesn't carry her, but she was recommended so highly to me that I bought her first one on spec, and it was pretty cheap. It was very reasonably priced, mm-hmm. and it was totally worth it, and so I will continue buying her. Nice. And hoping one one day that to get paper copies because those I would actually like to have in paper. Um, mm. And then like I bought last year when I was going on a big vacation, I yeah. bought the Patricia Reed uh, Enchanted Forest Chronicles, which is a middle grade series that I mm. loved as a kid and had this like hankering to reread. And I was like, well, I'm not going to buy five Seven ninety nine middle grade books and then carry them around on vacation. Like I'm gonna buy all of these for ten bucks on ebook and have it on my phone, and it was perfect. Hmm. So for the self published, did you go through that website? We can't remember. Did you buy from the Ugh, publisher directly? I, Where do you go? Yeah, she it was the only place to get them. Was yeah. the name of the site that we can't remember right now? Yeah, it was the only the one. It was the. It, I tried mm-hmm. literally every other option, but normally I buy from Kobo Books because the prices are usually the same, and they they yeah. are hooked up to my old indie bookstore in New York. So, I think for a self pub author. Um, that, that website we can't think of gives you a pretty sweetheart deal if you only live yes, with them. Yes. And, yeah. you know, um, they are, it is I, I it get is. it. Uh, I, I get it. Yeah, I get it too. I get it too. Uh, I, I think that that tends to be the way. If you know anything about academic, um, anyone out there, not just you specifically, Jen, if you do, I'd love to hear it. But podcast at bookwrite.com, if there's something about the economics of academic presses that I, that I don't get, um, Wait, not if. What is it about academic <laughs> presses that I don't get? Um, or if you're in, I know we have some birdies that work in publishing specifically that have um, kindly given us some tips and insight before. Any insight into what publishing, either the, the Big Five or anywhere, what the thinking is right now about pricing ebooks? Because the only thing, the, the only logical conclusion I can come to at this point is they're priced so that you kind of don't want to buy them, which may, maybe that's right. I mean, as we've seen the resilience, the subsidy that print is getting relative to ebooks um, over time has worked, I guess. Um, but there we are. So let's do a sponsor. Indeed. If you want to, you know, th- this one you can get anywhere. It's the Great Courses Plus. So here's the deal with the Great Courses Plus. You can find out anything, really about anything. You want to pick up a new hobby. You want to get more experts, something you know about, you want to dig a little deeper, you want to explore something completely new, try The Great Courses Plus. You can figure out any kinds of thing, like what impact does the music have on the brain? What is the purpose of Stonehenge? What is string theory exactly? I don't think it's that scene from Beautiful Mind. String theory is something <laughs> else besides that. How do you play guitar? Like, I know you like use a pick and stuff, but like, how could you pick up and start learning how to play guitar or how to paint thousands of lectures to explore, each presented by bright, engaging experts. So it's not just courses in a traditional college sense. It's how to, how to get good at something. And you can learn completely 
at your own pace. You didn't understand what they meant about stone hands the first time? Go back, listen to it again. Watch or listen anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. I, my kids and I, because of this thing you may have heard of called the Great British Baking Show, we like to do a little baking now. Mm. And I looked on the Great Course Plus, there's stuff there about baking and cooking. And you can set up the little iPad in the kitchen right there, and you can follow along with people who are cooking. I think that is great. For some reason, my brain hates prose descriptions of cooking methodology. Um, well documented here. I didn't know the difference between a pinch and a dash. Thank you very much for that. But you know, what does it mean to cook to a rolling boil versus a simmer? Uh, very, very difficult qualitative things to understand in prose. If you have no prior reference for it, no mental model of a rolling boil, you can see what it looks like. So take your knowledge, skills to the next level with the Great Courses Plus. Right now, they're giving our listeners this fantastic limited time offer, a full month of unlimited access for free. But to get your free month, you must sign up through our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. There will be a link in the show notes as well, so you can go figure out how to boil bread. Well, I guess you're making a bagel. <laughs> you could do it that way, but that was supposed to be a non sequitur, but it kind of made sense. Um, speaking of things that, well, does this make sense? So maybe I'll just... I'll, I'll, I'm going to tee up a little bit here, Jen. Mm. Um, we this got dropped into our Slack um, by people who know things, you know, that follow publish, publishing news. I don't know if you dropped it in or maybe Lib did. I can't remember. Um, but if you don't follow the book industry or like sort of behind the register kind of stuff, you may not know that Baker and Taylor and Ingram are big deals in the world of physical book selling because what they do largely is supply bookstores with books. Um, they serve as a middleman between publishers and bookstores so that bookstores don't have to order from a billion different publishers. They can order from Ingram or Baker or Taylor. They can you know, fill out the, get their no, – you fill out your ISBNs. How do you do that exactly, Jen? Is that what you do is you, you, you plug in your ISBNs and they, they spit them out and they send you boxes? That's how it works basically? More or less, yeah. More or less. And if you remember um, – well, this is a different show actually. I was thinking this is annotated. But on, on the episode of Annotated we did about the – very this called the modern – uh, oh, the very model of a modern major bookstore about how Barnes & Noble became to be a behemoth and why it no longer is. One of the things in the old days um, that really Walden Books figured out was let's have distribution places where we don't have to order from all the different publishers. Imagine if you're 1941, you're running in independent bookstores, you have to have accounts with all of the publishers and do all of your orders individually through them, which is a big mess. So basically, these distributors became, you know what, we can serve the function of being the warehouse where you send us an order, we'll pick from all the different things we've got, we'll send it over to you, easy peasy, you can do it from there. Now, my understanding is that there's been consolidation happening, there used to be more of these places, as happens in giant capitalist markets, um, consolidation happens over time, where Baker and Taylor and Ingram were basically the two largest ones, or some other players maybe you'll talk about here in a minute, and news came this week that Baker and Taylor is getting out of this business, no longer going to provide wholesale services for retail bookstores, not shutting down immediately. They're going to kind of, I don't know, a fade out, repeat and fade, as you'd say in a, in a music song. A music song? Jesus, come on, <laughs> it's a song. Um, but this is a big deal um, for reasons I think you want to talk about, and then maybe we can talk together about why and why it matters. So why is this a big deal, Jen? Why is it, okay, we've got, we've got one instead of two. Why does it matter? Yeah, so 
I don't ever think a monopoly is a great thing for no, an industry. Okay, like, let's just start with the biggest picture possible here. And it was it's interesting because there were rumblings a while back that Ingram was considering buying Baker and Taylor, which also everybody was really upset about because – you know, if there's no competition over terms and turnarounds and shipping and all of that stuff, you are, you have less market response and, mm-hmm. you know, the booksellers have less options. And that's a really – it's a really tight margin. A, a successful bookstore operates at a 2% profit margin. So every penny, in fact, does count. Uh, so wh- how much you're going to pay in shipping and what your discount is from the wholesaler makes a big difference. And then also I know from my own experience uh, working in bookstores that Ingram and Baker and & Taylor have different locations and different stock. So there's some mm-hmm. things that I just couldn't get from one or the other. And Baker & Taylor tended to be quicker on certain kinds of turnaround. Ingram was better for print on demand. You know, they were each good at different things, Hmm. which is very helpful when you're trying to stock a bookstore effectively. And most indies, who are the ones who are particularly upset about this, try to do multiple orders a week because they're doing things like taking special orders from their customers and promising that they'll have the book, you know, uh, hopefully pretty quickly within the same time that it might take to get it shipped from the name of the big online store that we can't remember, right? Like mm-hmm. that's part of customer service at an indie bookstore. And Ingram, quite frankly, does not have as quick turnaround for a lot of those things as Baker and Taylor did. And so this is going to put a lot of booksellers in a really tough place. I know bookstores that only work with Baker and Taylor that don't work with Ingram for various reasons. Now they're not going to have a choice for the mm-hmm. most part. Now, that is not to say there aren't so for example there's bookazine which is a very small wholesaler on the east coast i don't know that they are national or not uh but they we definitely use them when i was in new york um and there are also jeff i'm gonna get really pedantic for a minute yes let's (laughs) do it i want i love it i'm here for it so there are wholesalers right like baker and taylor ingram who will get a little bit of everything from all of the different publishers and then resell them to bookstores and Mm -hmm. the way they can do that is they get they'll buy things in bulk right and get a really big discount from the publishers and then give the bookstores like a smaller discount but still a decent enough discount that the bookstores want to order from them you can actually side note get better discounts if you order directly from the publishers as a bookstore Mm. but lots of those publishers have shipping minimums and if you're a small small store and you don't hit it, you have to wait forever to meet the minimum. Like that's not going to work out for you very well. Hmm. So yeah, it's complicated. And they also tend to take longer to get to you. Their shipping is slower, things like that. So, okay. So a wholesaler has a little bit of everything from across the publishing board. There are also distributors who carry specific publishers, usually smaller presses, And so there are distributors like PGW, SPD, IPG that you can get things from, you know, some of the smaller independent presses, but they don't carry the big five. So there are multiple places to order different things from. It's just that Baker and Taylor and Ingram as wholesalers had almost all of them. Right. So, hmm. We don't really know. So the, the language in the, this is a publisher's weekly article, I'll link in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. We, the, the, the reason we're given that Baker and Taylor is getting out of this is their parent company, which is Follett. Is that how we say that? I, I believe know, so. I'm guessing, is more interested in educational materials rather than um, direct to consumer sort of retail bookstores. 
Okay. Yeah, and, I, I guess. And they're staying in the library market. They serve a lot of their library market as well, and they're going to keep doing yeah. that, which makes sense. Uh, I There was some language in – I can't – I don't know if it was the – PGW or excuse me the P ooh, I lost my I lost my acronyms for a second there the PW article um I did see something about rising costs for shipping and mm. for printing being part of the issue which is true it's true books cost more to print there's a shortages yeah. of paper you, I know that the show has talked about that before yes we have. and uh and shipping is not cheap shipping is not cheap no. so if you're operating again margins in publishing really slim if you're operating on a really slim Publishing margin, you know, profit margin, you're maybe not so interested in continuing to do that forever. So yeah. I think that there's probably a P&L report somewhere that this makes perfect sense. Hmm. But it's a real bummer for independent bookstores. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I guess Ingram is my, my understanding is a much larger business. Is that right? You is know, that, I don't actually know the answer to that. Although okay. I will tell you, I have been in an Ingram warehouse. I went oh, to have? the giant distribution center down in Nashville, Tennessee, I want to say, and, mm. uh, and saw the giant, you know, bins and bins of books and the conveyor <laughs> belts and the packaging and the, and also we got to see their print on demand section, which has the biggest rolls of paper you've ever seen in your entire life. <laughs> it's bananas. I would like to see yeah, those. it's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, so I, that's possible. I don't actually know in my head the relative size of the companies. Right. I mean, I wonder if this is a deal where as more book buying is happening online, there might be only room for one healthy player in the space. You know, it was going to be Ingram mm. or Baker and Taylor, and Ingram, for whatever reason, came out a little bit ahead. It, it's hard to be second place in a, in a one-horse um, kind of a, only one winner or one um, sustainable business there. I guess also I, it would have made sense for Ingram to buy it. But on the other hand, if bookstores don't really have another choice, why buy that business when they have to come to you after this right. thing closes down anyway? Unless they wanted like, to pay for it? distribution centers, in which case. You I know. guess, right. If they, if they want some of the infrastructure right. um, to go on there. And, you know, um, uh, our friend Oren Tyker of the ABA, the outgoing ABA CEO, um, said – one of the reasons that independent bookstores have had a a mild to medium level resurgence over the last 10 years or so is a competitive wholesale environment. You could kind of play Ingram and Baker and Taylor off each other, even if you didn't do it individually. They're basically value proposition to an independent bookstore, a bookstore of any kind, or someone trying to, to stock books. Isn't, isn't just independent bookstores, I should say, that do this. Um, was, you know, which one of them has a better deal? And a two-player race creates all kinds of interesting choices for a client mm -hmm. of one of those companies. And that's, that's going to go away. I did a little research about this for something a while ago, and it looked like, just from my amateur's eyeball, that Baker and Taylor had a little bit better of a deal. So I don't know. Maybe that will change. Just their pick fees and their shipping stuff mm -hmm. just seemed a little bit better of a deal. Um, that, and this is for especially direct-to-consumer fulfillment, because one thing... Baker and Taylor and Ingram do if you're an independent bookstore is if um, a, a customer orders something from your website, they can ship it to them directly. Yeah. They don't have to go to the store and pick it up, which is a nice service to have mm -hmm. available. Um, on the other hand, maybe that Ingram can get is now the lone player. Maybe they can no negotiate with publishers better. They'll have they'll have more negotiating power everywhere. Yeah, it's very um, true. Which will strengthen their business for independent bookstore. Maybe not as good. Um, on the other hand, Ingram, I think, is in. It would be in their best interest to keep independent bookstores healthy because that's a giant client for them. Um, very, very interesting 
days uh, when it comes to this. I wonder anymore. So you were saying that publishers have a minimum ship. Some of them. I wonder if the if a, 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 that technology is so much better. Like, I guess is what Baker and Taylor Ingram did. Like, it, it seems weird that they ship books to a giant warehouse, and then they get shipped from that warehouse to the bookstores. Like, I wonder if you could get the supply chain lined up right, where you'd have a centralized ordering hub, but then the publishers could send them to you directly. But maybe they're not interested in doing that. Um, I wonder. But uh, Ingram. Well, there's is collusion issues there. <sighs> so. Yeah, I guess which is more of a problem? Five, you know, a whole bunch of publishers have to coordinate, or Ingram, who's like the lone box. Right. I mean, I don't know. I guess uh, pick your poison. Yeah. Um, there a little bit. I was looking to see if there's any other kind of um, knock-on consequence here. I, I don't really. You make see an one. interesting oh. point. I haven't heard from the publisher side what they think about this, and I would be very yeah. curious because I, you know, you're right. They are. They operate. Ingram will be operating in a really key position in yeah. the market and that does give them more power to negotiate all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I think it will be very interesting to see what that looks like for the publishers. I hadn't thought about that because I, you know, my, my experience is in the bookstore realm. So that's where my right. brain goes first, but uh, it's a very interesting question. Yeah. And it, just in terms of like, again, Ingram content group is much bigger than this part yes. of their business. That, that's, yeah. that's why it's called like weirdly like generic Ingram content group. Um, but the way this part of the business works is essentially bookstores get a 40% discount on most titles. Um, Ingram gets more than that from the publisher, so they have some margin there. They charge a pick fee. It's like $0.65 cents per title, and it scales down the more you order, blah, blah, blah. And then, at least for Ingram, you pay published UPS and USPS rates, though Ingram does enough um, business with them that they have lower negotiated rates. So they pick up basically the difference in what the street price is versus what the negotiated rates is. So all of those things, all of those things that I just mentioned are only strengthened by having one fewer, uh, actually having the, the Pepsi out of the business and, and Coke is the only one sort of, um, remaining here. Also a difficult business to start up mm-hmm. where you've got to have these giant warehouses yep. and infrastructures and selling to all these different bookstores. So there are some competitive moats there. So someone say, why don't we just start another big, well, you can have warehouses all over the country. These places are competing against that other websites, um, shipping terms. Mm-hmm. Like th- that's a, that's, I'm not even sure it's a shadow presence in all of this. Like this is, you know, it's just there in the room, um, getting dealt into the hands of poker, um, that Amazon has become a logistics powerhouse, uh, and it's not just books, it's everything involved. And they're as good as anyone has ever been at getting things into people's hands. And so they're competing with the specter of that as well. Not for nothing, I will tell you that I know for a fact of bookstores that have ordered books from Amazon to resell in their stores. Well, you look at the prices for yep. some things, and I don't know. I'll just give an example. My mom doesn't listen to the show, but I, I just bought her birthday present. And I was looking around, I was I wanted to buy the uh, the Atlas Obscura book, which is great. It's a great general purpose gift. If anyone's seen that, Atlas Obscura is a great website. It talks about interesting places around the world you can visit. My mom is interested in interesting in different places. So it's a great book. It's a great present. It sits on the coffee table. We're going to talk about it. $35 street hardcover mm-hmm. through that website that I, I can't remember the name of, $15.17 delivered tomorrow yep. through Prime. A 40% discount is way more than fifteen seventeen for an independent bookstore. So... That is a rough spot. Um, uh, I, I don't know. It, 
I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Um, this is not. I, this is not a good. Mo- this is not a good. This is not good news. If you care about the extent publishing landscape, if you're interested in the retail landscape getting shaken up more, maybe this is interesting. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not happy about this, and I sort of tend to stay. I tend to see myself relatively neutral in sort of the the publishing business because I don't know. I don't have a, a strong side. But I'm but but I am like you in this regard, which is very few times does a monopoly mm-hmm. work out well for anyone but the monopolist. Yep. Um, I guess if it were in, say, Pierre, I mean, this is we talk about this on the show all the time. If PRH wanted to, they could do this business, basically, right? I mean, if they wanted to, to start their own like distribution, like business where they they would then basically do they you know they're sixty percent of the book trade. They only need forty percent of the other part. The only other forty percent to buy in, they could cut this middleman out completely. Um, I don't know. I wonder if something like that would ever, yeah. would ever be interesting. Again, I don't know how collusion works into that, and everybody's yeah. very gun shy about that after the big sure. ebook price fixing case. So I don't. I just don't know. I just don't know the legally is right. well enough to say. Yeah, probably probably the same, you know, this the same um problem of like if PRH one ever have their own chain of retail bookstores or anything else like that where they had to work closely with other publishers, um probably the same the same problem would come up again and again. Okay. Well, if you know anything, you've got thoughts, feelings, I know a lot of you out there listen from very um a diverse um set of niches in the publishing world, from frontline booksellers to publishers um, to authors, um, to all the way, all, all along the watchtower. You've got other angles on this. Um, please let us know. Podcast at bookriot.com. Another, uh, another ongoing interest of ours is not just the publishing bu- business, but the, um, the feistiness of the Tolkien yeah. estate. They, they, I mean, I guess we shouldn't be surprised about this, Jen, right? I mean, I, I guess, I assume maybe they did hated this from the beginning. So the story is, is that um, this new Tolkien biography stock, I've never said this dude's name out loud. Holt? Holt. Nicholas Holt? Holt. Yeah playing the um, World War I-bound uh, J.R. Tolkien. It's called Tolkien, creatively, uh, the name of the movie. And the Tolkien estate says, does not approve of, authorize, or participate in the making of this new biographical film. Um, I guess, not surprised. What do you think about this, Jeff? Yeah, they're notoriously cranky and protective about uh, mm-hmm. ver- everything. Everything? Everything. And so it is 0% surprising that they are cranky about this. It's interesting to me that, like, who, who, how did they make this movie? Like, what, what? I don't understand that either. This is the part that I don't understand. I'm not surprised they're cranky. What I want to know is who, where did the research come from to make this movie? Like, they, uh, the Guardian piece interviews a biographer and he says, you know, he also is saying, like, I hope that anyone who enjoys the film will pick up a reliable biography. Like, where did the film get its stuff to, to, to twist and distort and adapt in the first place? And I don't know enough about and that. How That's a great I don't understand how life rights work. Like, I don't understand mm-hmm. how you can make a movie about a dude 
and not have to get the okay of his estate. That's another part I don't get. But it happens all the time. Like there's that David Bowie movie coming out that mm-hmm. doesn't isn't going to have any of the music. Do you remember hearing about this? Yes. <laughs> I like weirdly. So it's like okay, I guess I guess public figures. Who knows? I don't understand the legalities of it. Mm-hmm. But it's I'm just so curious. It's like who whose research did they use? It's very interesting to me on that. Sense. Yeah, it looks like. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not clear because you're right. The biographer they they get a comment from. It's not stated that this book is based on his book, though it covers the same material. His book is called Tolkien and the Great War. Mm-hmm. I don't know how life rights work. I know there's some things about transformative works, mm-hmm. right? Like if you are portraying something and you transform it to some degree. Um, also, there is the public figure situation, but the idea that you could call something Tolkien, make money off of it. And you don't have to come to a legal understanding with the Tolkien estate is a very curious corner case in how intellectual property would seem to me to work. Because weirdly, you could make a book about Tolkien, but there's no way they could remake The Hobbit right. without the which, – which when you say it like that actually feels like I'm in Bizarro Land. <laughs> like you can't adapt a book that's fiction, but you can take the dude's name and make a movie about it that is going to take liberties because all biopics do – and it's legal. I, I don't. I don't understand. Yeah. I, I really don't. Um, very fascinating. I have to say. I mean, I, I guess unsurprising to anyone to listen to this show. I'm interested in this movie. Um, the story is pretty interesting. Tolkien's life and how Middle Earth came to be and World War One is a very interesting story. He's a weirder guy than Nicholas Holt looks. Like <laughs> Nicholas Holt's a very attractive looking guy, and Tolkien, you know, from very early age was like super into abstruse languages unsurprisingly and like all the middle earth stuff to my to my knowledge came out of like being interested in making up languages and the languages came first rather than mm-hmm. second um which is which is super fascinating and very, as as you might guess from watching any or reading any of the lord of the ring stuff um the 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 continental europe at war um was a not even a subtext it's a supra text um of the book so i i'm looking forward to the to the book, I'm just. It's too bad that. Um, I guess this is not really a mean statement. They're just no. They're just saying nope. This, this wasn't our jam. Yeah. This wasn't our jam. And the the lawyer for the Tolkien estate was quick to say this is not a harbinger of future legal action. Right. Which sometimes maybe something like this is the language is specific. I wonder if um, they had to say this for some reason. Yeah. I wonder. Uh, which is which is pretty. Are you interested in this? Are you gonna go? Are you gonna watch this on video when it comes out, or go to the? Theater I was gonna say I'll stream it. Maybe I might stream <laughs> it. Yeah, I have a. Well, if we get into it, there's reasons I don't love knowing too much about my favorite authors yeah, and their families. Right. Like every time I think I'm curious about a person, I regret being curious. Of course, Hollywood's not gonna show any of that stuff, so it's. Yeah. I'm sure it's fine, and I'm sure it's interesting, and it. You know, the trailer looks very entertaining. But uh, I am I am the shruggy emoji on this one, right? Yeah, that that's totally fair. And I guess the other thing is, I think biopics will take the the Bohemian Rhapsody is a great example for me. It's like the the actual facts are way more interesting to know they're actual than the the liberties taken with Mm. them. So I would almost rather read a a um, sprightly book that covers the same topic that's um, hues more closely to the truth. Yeah. Um, but that's my my personality um, as well. Uh, let's see. What do we got next? You know, let's do a sponsor. Okay. Sponsor? Let's do it. We like audiobooks. I, you don't. You don't listen to audiobooks. I listen to audiobooks. We, writ large, 
the royal we of the Book Riot podcast likes audiobooks, you should know, or if you've been thinking about it, an Audible membership. It's got a special deal. That's really all this spot is about. Special deal you can get from us. Most free trial offers include one free download in your 30-day trial. We're going to double that for you. We can give you two. That's right. Go to bookriot.com slash audible, and you can sign up to get two free audiobooks. When you sign up for your free trial, there's some copy here about audiobooks are great. They're great. You're listening to this podcast. You know how good on-demand audio can be. I'm going to give you a tip. I'm just I'm about halfway through it right now. If you're looking to try something, right now I'm listening to, to From Scratch by Tembi Locke, which is a memoir of her going to Italy and falling in love and stuff happening. And it's she's it's it's a different. This is like it sounds like an under the Tuscan sun sort of thing, and it kind of is. Except there's a really interesting twist: is that Tembi Locke is a black woman from Texas, which is not the story you get often in these. I went to Italy and I found myself. Um, there's this whole other interesting layer that's going on. She talks about her own personal history, or her parents' um, involvement in '60s radical politics, how she ended up in Italy in the first place, how she understood herself in the larger context in history, how it affected this. Uh, I don't know how to do this because, like, for for capital R romance people, I can't say whether or not it's romance, or else I'll spoil it for everybody else. At the very least, I'll say it's a love story. Um, but also has food in Italy. It's beautiful. I don't do a lot of steamy stuff. And so far, there hasn't been any like steamy scenes. But it is very romantic and sensual when it comes to love and food and feelings and atmosphere. It's great on audio. Tembi recommends it. That could be one of your two free ones if you go to bookwrite.com slash audible. For those of you who already have audible or go somewhere else, go pick up From Scratch by Tembi Lock. Okay. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about oh. blood air? Yeah, give me the lowdown. We Rebecca and I avoided this at the beginning because oh. we were between episodes, so we got to start. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people that have um, that listen to the show are interested in news have read this already. But let's give us the the what do we call it the uh, coverage, Jen, about how the what's going on with this book. All right, so there is a debut novel called The Blood Air by Amelie Wenjiao, and it came under fire from early reviewers for insensitively and offensively portraying slavery. There were a lot of American readers specifically, Zhao is Chinese. Uh, There were a lot of American readers who felt like it was co-opting slave narratives in ways that were upsetting. And there was a big internet Twitter storm about it. Uh, She withdrew the book in January and she has recently uh, come back and they have decided to publish it. And I think the most interesting thing about this story is that she has reworked the manuscript with help from experts, including a human trafficking scholar, academics from different multicultural backgrounds. They got sensitivity readers because what she says she was trying to do is to make a commentary on human trafficking in a fantasy novel, which is no small feat and Mm -hmm. no small project, right? And so, and she was sort of unaware, according to her, of the American context and the way that it would might be received by American readers, particularly of the black community. And so she has since, you know, they pulled the book. Now it's, now they're 
they've decided to publish it and move forward. Um, and they apparently have attempted to rework it so that it is clearer that what she's commenting on is human mm-hmm. ta- trafficking and indentured labor and not specifically the American system of slavery. So I think this is super interesting. I, yeah. you will find in the coverage a lot of hand wringing about censorship and Twitter mobs, which I have to take issue with. I mean, Twitter can be a very unkind place and it can also be, those conversations can be lacking in nuance. But I also think that a book that's going to handle a topic like that should have research and sensitivity Mm. readers involved for these very reasons. You can't know as a writer how your work on a very sensitive issue might come across to readers in different contexts from your own. And that is literally the whole point about doing research and having sensitivity readers. So I think, I think, I mean, who knows what, if the book will be better now, like that's an open question. I haven't read it. I haven't read either version, but I think that from a process standpoint, this is a win. Yeah. Is, is my, is my take on it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many related, but also somewhat distinct layers to this. One is how to react to criticism, but also unstated behind this is a world we live in that's not about Twitter. It's about more rank-and-file readers getting their hands on early copies of books and being able to mm-hmm. respond to them way earlier in the process mm-hmm. than has ever had before. And my sense of this is is this is a tactic that's intentional, to get pre-pub publicity going, especially in these commun- these niche communities within the larger book world, YA being one of them, there are others uh, around them, get some buzz going, and this is the double ed- this is the other edge of that particular yes. sword, right? Because if it doesn't go well, this kind of thing that can happen. If it does go well, you can get something that comes out of the gate with a lot of people talking about it. They're they're twittering about it. They're Instagramming about it. They're tumbling about it. Maybe maybe even more importantly. The battleground for these types of things seems to me not necessarily Twitter, which it is, but it's Goodreads. Mm -hmm. Because the Goodreads reviews, these early Goodreads reviews where you're getting a book one-starred and being called racist, you can't abide by that. Just from a publishing point of view, where the book comes out and people go look it up on Goodreads or Amazon or whatever, it's got a bunch of one-star reviews calling it racist, you're out of the game. So to, to some degree, you have to deal with that. And that's a consequence, I think, of like, if you're going to try to ride the beast of pre-pub publicity, you got to realize that some ways it's going to go sideways. Now, when it goes sideways, um, rightly or wrongly, sort of taking that out of the, out of the equation, this is how you respond, I think. This is what you, you pull the book, you take a look at it, the publisher's got to decide, this is the reality we're dealing with, the author too, what are we going to do about it? You know, there's, I can understand the implication just to, well, this is the book I wrote, let's plow forward. I think you're going to run into a brick wall there. But if you're going to do something else, if you're going to try to address the criticisms, if you're going to try to make the book more palatable that the audience is th- that's going to read it, this looks like sort of a, a template for how you might do it. Go back, get people who aren't you, listen as best you can, um, reframe, communicate. All those things seem seem pretty good to me. Again, whether or not the book is actually going to be quote unquote good or not, I haven't read the original. I haven't read the subsequent one. I will not. It's not my style. I'm not going to read this book particularly, but a fascinating moment. Um, and I guess another question that maybe was inherent in something you said is, what is the what is our what is our appetite? And I'm using R very loosely for giving someone who's done some, written a book that was at the very least insensitive a second crack 
at it? And then are you going to give them the benefit of the doubt that say they've done a they've good faith effort or you're sort of done? Can, can you come back? Are there second acts in a book's life um, to, 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 to modify the Fitzgerald? And this is one of the first ones I've seen that has attempted to do that, you know, that's attempted to sort of regroup reframe and then proceed. Yeah. I mean, I want to say that I think there's a lot of important pieces here. And I think it's not small to note that this is a woman of color who Mm -hmm. pulled her book, reconsidered, brought in, they brought in sensitivity readers, et cetera, and now is reissuing. There have been multiple books that got called out for similar issues by white authors. Those books got published. Those authors are doing fine. Like it's not... It is for all of the hand wringing about Twitter mobs. Like those people are fine. They had, they did have some very bad days on the internet. That is undoubtedly true. And their books got panned in ways I'm sure were very hurtful. But mm-hmm. also, those books got published. They didn't get pulled. There's no censorship here. So I think that, yeah, Second Acts don't need permission. I mean, you don't need permission from anybody on social media to continue doing what you're doing. You can do it anyway. All you need is your publisher. And, and that's a point I just want to make for a moment here is that I really truly believe that publishers are failing authors when these things happen because Mm. they are not a book that deals with human trafficking should have had experts and sensitivity readers from the drop. Like you should have had that stuff in place before you ever sent out review copies. And then yes, publishers are the ones who are sending out these review copies to people in hopes that they will talk about them online. And the fact that they don't like what they're hearing is sort of secondary to the fact that they're the ones who gave social media the power in the first place to make those judgment calls. So publishing is not just like a helpless babe in the woods here. Like publishing has created its own problems. First of all, by not giving support to its authors who are tackling different difficult topics and representations by giving them the resources they need to get it right. And secondly, by putting these out into the world and then being surprised when people are talking about it, like, "Mm, I don't know, y'all. I don't know. Uh, this is this is <laughs> this is this is you are giving people the power to do this. I I find it very disingenuous to then feel sorry for yourselves when it backfires. Yeah, from this piece, it's not clear how much her publisher was involved in the regrouping. Re- yeah, re- she, it, it sounds, sounds like she did me, a lot of the heavy lifting herself. Exactly, it, it no. does. Which again, like you know. Delacorte, like, what are you doing? <laughs> this yeah, is, uh, you know, what's your editor doing? Like, I get that public, we're all overworked and underpaid and blah, blah, blah. But like, if you're going to publish books and they're going to tackle difficult topics, this is what you have to do. Yeah. I mean, the one of the many other layers too is like, how are, how, you know, these, in these fantasy landscapes, how specific identities or representation maps onto the real world mm-hmm. in different contexts is also very yes. difficult um, to parse. And I think maybe can give people, I guess, a false sense of security about what they're writing. Um, it also rooms opens up a lot of room for interpretation on the reader response side. Of, of course. Um, so that's another piece of it as well, is that people are mapping um, real world social issues and historical realities onto, you know, a fantasy book, which apparently was something this author was trying to do and it didn't get mapped properly, um, at least according to her, that mm-hmm. she, she failed in execution, not intent right. necessarily. Right. 
Um, but a very, a very fraught topic that to me doesn't have a clear, there's not a real clear message here except that this is the world you're, especially in YA, I think middle grade could be like this too, especially in those two. You're entering in a world where you're using pre-pub publicity from people who are passionate about that genre or that, or, or that um, category. Your antenna need to be even further up and on. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just try to, to, to get the benefits of a more democratized pre-publicity campaign without realizing that sometimes, or if you're not careful, you're going to walk into one of these things. Um, And I don't know, again, without having read the book, it's it's hard to say. Um, It sounds to me like this was a, just just from a very sort of like outside the, looking from the outside, a warranted reimagination. Just just looking at just the the, prose descriptions, like, yeah, it looks like this one needed um, to go back to the drawing board a little bit and see what's going on. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure where we go from here. Um, it's a good point about the second acts. Cause I guess I was more thinking the second acts in terms of like, does the, does do the people who came out critical of the book and left one star Goodread review, do they give it a second chance or are they out? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'd be curious to know podcast at bookriot.com. If you um, have an opinion about that, love to hear from you. All right. Hmm. 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 Let's do Barnes and Noble. Let's go back to the to the the world of um, trying to get books off shelves mm. into people's hands. Oh come on, podcast agenda, you're frozen. Oh, so sad. Um, so this story is about the country's smallest Barnes and Noble opened a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's in Fairfax, Virginia. It's called the Mosaic District. Know nothing about it, uh, and it's the smallest yet as part of Barnes and Noble's experiments, innovation, whatever you want to call it, testing out smaller format stores. It is a mere 8,300 square feet, and it's the smallest of these 12 small uh, small footprint prototypes. We talked about some of the other ones. I think the other one we talked about before was around 12,000 square feet. So this is, you know, uh, 30% again as small. Um... I'm not sure what else to say about it, except it's small. <laughs> but Jen, tell me, is it small? I was just going to say, it yeah. depends on where you are geographically. Like in New York, that mm-hmm. is massive. Um, <laughs> I mean, I worked in a 900 square foot bookstore. So, that's right. You know, How many titles did you have at the 900 oh, square foot Oh, I wish I could answer that question. Okay, I don't know fine. off the top of my head. Yeah, this one has 24,000 titles, which, I mean, when you consider how many new books come out every year, like that is a limited yeah. selection, but a robust one. And, you know, it's going to have the classic Barnes & Noble. There are games and toys and a cafe and Starbucks, Starbucks yeah. Yeah, stationery and gifts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, it's, so it's basically they're doing – they kind of are doing the indie model. Like that's not yep. – that would be a big indie store depending, again, geography. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a reasonably sized indie bookstore if you've been around for a while and got in early and have a decent landlord. Like you could do that. So I think it's interesting that they're figuring out that the giant footprint of the classic Barnes & Noble or big box store no longer serves mm-hmm. them. Well. Wow. Yeah, it feels to me like they're trying to see how small they can make a bookstore that makes it feel like you're going into a bookstore for Barnes & Noble. Mm. Like, how small of a thing can we make that makes people gives people the feeling of what it's like to walk into a Barnes & Noble? And people still like going to bookstores. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'll throw indies into the same pot here just for a moment to say like, people like going into a bookstore, but you don't have to have that much bookstore to get the feeling, right? right? You don't need a hundred thousand square foot. Is it it a uh, hundred thousand square foot Barnes and Noble like in the old days doesn't feel twelve times better than an 8,300 square foot bookstore um, that this model is. You go in, you look around, people are there for browsing. They're not using the stacks like they used to for Barnes & Noble to find backlist or really trying to do discovery or you know things like that. They can go and find that website we can't remember the name of or other places where you can go you know, c- kind of pull from the stacks. But if you're going to go and look around, have a cup of coffee, look at the sidelines, kill 20 minutes with friends, walking around the Mosaic District or some other sort of pedestrian-friendly area... Maybe you only need that much, you know. Maybe that's the minimum viable bookstore um, for Barnes and Noble. It's got to be less expensive. Got to be less expensive to maintain. Mm-hmm. Got to be less, less expensive to staff. Much less expensive to start up, and also, um, sadly, much less expensive to wind down yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if it doesn't work. Um, so I don't know. Like, you know, as book as independent bookstores continue to do all right. And Barnes and Noble still flounders. It's interesting to see Barnes and Noble continue to fall towards our what we're doing is having a chain of small bookstores that feel like independent bookstores called Barnes and Noble. Like, is that where the, is that where the the company is going? That's kind of where it I don't started. Know yeah, yeah, that's true. And it got it had bloomed out mm-hmm. from there. Um, but then you know it's 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 fascinating to see um, it happen in real time. If you're in Fairfax, Virginia, um, you go back to the Mosaic District. You can go check it out. It looks nice. I think there's an aesthetic to these that is a little too, I don't know, a little too industrial to me. Like this, again, has these same ceilings where you don't have any, I don't know, you see all the exposed wiring Mm. and plumbing, and there's sort of a drop ceiling of lights that makes it feel kind of like an Ikea, like how Ikea does that. You have the really tall ceilings, and then they drop the lights down to make it feel lower. I'm not sure that's what I want from a bookstore. It's definitely an aesthetic. Like, it's definitely an aesthetic choice you've seen in all of these smaller format Barnes and Nobles. Um, I think, too, maybe I'm biased. Well, actually, I know I'm biased, but maybe it's just me is what I should say. Like, the uniform, the Barnes and Noble signage still feels stale. <laughs> like, just looking at these pictures, like, hasn't changed that is a Barnes since and the no- 90s. The typography yeah. and colors and everything from the 90s. So it's it feels a little bit, it feels like they've shoehorned, like, that feels more native to the Barnes and Noble experience than this other stuff that's going on. Like they haven't fully gone to a different aesthetic. Um, but, uh, that's where I'm coming down on that. All right. Barnes and Noble, again, I, I don't know what the, why the book club stuff they're doing, why they're continuing to do it. Like we've had some people say they enjoy it. They're branching out a little bit. They're starting a Y8 book club. Um, the book club will meet on the second Thursday of each month in Barnes and Noble bookstores nationwide discuss new YA titles. This is a, actually, this is a link on our own website, bookriot.com, a link in the show notes. Um, they're going to have exclusive book club editions that you can get, not surprisingly, uh, at Barnes and Nobles. The first meeting is June 13th, and the book is again, but better, um, by a debut author and YouTube sensation, Christine Riccio. And then We Hunt the Flame, by Hafsa Faisal. I don't know if I'm saying that impromptu. If you know better, Jen, please correct me. And then Rory Powers' Wilder Girls is the August pick. And it looks like it's just going to be for this summer, but they're going to have giveaways and 50% off other books where you go there. Um, so you can go check it out there. I'm trying to decide if I like this better or less or the same as the um, adult book club they are still doing. Um, I guess it makes sense to try away a book club. At the very least, 
the adult ones wasn't such a lead balloon that they're not interested in trying something else, I guess. Well, and I think they um, figured out sure. what indies figured out a long time ago is that if you're not the only place to get books and you're not the cheapest mm-hmm. place to get books, there has to be another reason people come into your store. And book club is a reason people come into your store. Like book clubs mm-hmm. are still so popular. I mean, look at all of the celebrities launching their own digital ones and, mm-hmm. you know, BuzzFeed and, you know, One City, One Reads. Like book clubs, people want to feel connected and people like books, and that's a way you can get both. So I find yeah. it singularly unsurprising that they're both trying smaller stores and working on community events. Although I will say that Barnes & Nobles has had a long history of doing yes. local events. I mean, that's one thing that they've always done. And so, but it makes mm-hmm. sense to me. It makes sense. You know, you get everybody, you get a you get to print your own copies and there's money in that weirdly enough. And, right. uh, you know, it, it, you get more people in the stores. Like it makes sense. You ran, um, book clubs at, uh, in Indy for a long time. Yes. Give give me the, or I've heard you talk about that. Give the, give the people out there, um, the 92nd version of why, why do people come to a book club at a bookstore? Like, what are they looking for? Is it the same thing they look for when they have their, their wine and cheese book club with their friends at their house? Or is it something different? Like, how people come back over and over again. What do they look for? What do they like? About yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think that a lot of people, well, so bookstore book clubs, there's no discussion about what you're going to pick next. Like there's a benevolent dictator at the bookstore <laughs> or, or corporate picking the books in the case of mm. Barnes and Noble. And so you don't have to argue with your fellow book clubbers about the book. If you hate it, you know exactly who to blame. Uh, and I think that, I think the idea of a hosted discussion in a public place has a lot of appeal because it's personal, but it's not as personal as going to somebody's house, you know? And I think a lot of people, I mean, especially we had a real interesting age mix for the book clubs that I ran, particularly in the Jersey City store. And so we would have retirees who, you know, were looking for another social event in the Mm -hmm. evenings. But we also had 20-somethings. We had teenagers sometimes, depending on the topic of the book club. And I think that I think that a lot of them were people who like if I had been a teenager and there had been a book club I could have gone to, I would have hit that. I didn't have people. I didn't have friends and family who wanted to talk with me about books. And I think that's Mm. why most people join a book club, either to connect with the friends I already have over something new or to find new people to connect with. Yeah, it's a really good point. Like the um, barrier to entry to an extent book club is fairly high. Like you have to know the people pretty well, I would Mm -hmm. think, a lot of times to get invited. And um, are they looking for new members or how do you even know? And it's kind of an awkward situation there. So there is sort of a taking all comers aspect um, to a bookstore book club where you show up, they want you to come. Um, They're not looking for reasons to say no, like, you know, an ongoing private book club might have. Uh, Really interesting there as well. Let me do a little technology corner here. Um, try, Audible and Amazon are trying to make audiobooks and smart speakers happen. They're like trying to do stuff to make this a thing. It's not clear to me. We've asked before on the show if people are listening to audiobooks through their um, smart speakers. A couple people say, said yes, but most people said no, I would never. Apparently now, Audible has launched a... Um, what do you call these? A skill, I guess, is the term of art for these things. Where if you say, oh, no, I have to say, um, Amazon Puck, call Audible. And it will do that. And you'll be put in touch with a human being from Audible's customer support. And you'll be able to help. They'll help with technical issues. And you can get book recommendations. 
and other troubleshooting queries. This went live. It's available now. It went live in April. Again, this is one we've had at the bottom of the show notes for a while, especially as we're getting ready for recommendation shows. Um, I think this is one of the weirdest things I've seen from Audible in a long time. But I think I told this story on the show. It reminded me of a story that my uncle told me, who's um, in his 70s, about wanting to try audiobooks on a cross-country trip. He and his wife were driving across country, like a six-day journey. And like, you know what? We should try Audible. They called Amazon. They called Amazon on the phone. And someone there helped them set up Audible on their phone and got their subscription all set up and downloaded a few books for them so they could there, from their Ford Explorer in the middle of Utah, start listening to the book. And I was like, that is wild. And it makes me think that there is more of a technological barrier for people trying audiobooks than maybe I'm giving credit for. Maybe this is just a stunt. I don't know. But using this data point and that very, very admittedly small anecdata point, maybe it's hard for people who want to try audiobooks to figure out Audible, to figure out their smartphone app, to figure out how you have to download everything. I don't know why else Audible would do this. Why, why make it so easy to get a human on the phone when all customer support I've dealt with lately is trying everything they can to keep me from talking to a human? So I'm not sure what else to say about this. Jen, any thoughts? It's a 24-hour nonstop customer service support line, apparently, and that just yeah. gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies <laughs> because <laughs> why, why having so? done a lot of customer support oh. in my life, like I don't know who they're farming this out to, and I can only hope mm. that those call center folks are treated kindly by the people calling in, uh, but that's going to be that's gonna be something. Yeah. Um, it's the first time that Alexa will be linked up to an existing help center. Which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, that is interesting. That's that's very interesting to see. Um, it says Audible says it's not the same as just calling the customer support phone number. Like this is a, a unique internal tool that they built with Alexa. Again, Audible and Alexa are both Amazon products. So I don't. Of course, I mean it would make sense they work closely because they're the same company. I don't know why that's a selling point. Um, but it's a new experience that ushers in a new era of customer service. Why, why would they want to give you a special service by talking to your tube? I don't understand. I don't get that. Why, why get? I mean, why different than if you're if you call on the phone? That I don't really, I really don't understand. So there's that one. Uh, let's see. We've got a few. Another more. sponsor, let's, Jen. You, I, 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 I listed you for one sponsor this week. So let's do that sponsor. All right, let's do that sponsor. And this sponsor is Lola. And the question they have posed is: If we care about the ingredients in the food we eat and the beauty products we use, which I think many of us do, why shouldn't the same be true of our period care products? And it turns out the FDA does not require brands to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients in their period care products, so most of them don't. And Lola is different because they offer complete transparency about the ingredients found in their tampons and pads and liners and wipes, all of which are 100% organic cotton, no added chemicals or fragrances or synthetics or dyes, which is, sadly, very unusual in the period care area of life, I'm sad to say. Mm. And also, they have a customizable subscription. So you can choose your mix of products, absorbency, number of boxes, how frequently you want them, and you can change, skip, and cancel anytime, which is a huge boon because lots of folks, you know, you can go into the grocery store and buy whatever period care products you need, but they often come in multi-packs that are not exactly the things that you want, and then you buy six different boxes to get the things that you want. Lola will take care of that for you. I did get a box of 
of these, and I will say it is a very discreet box, and mm. the actual tampons are both color-coded and labeled in a very minimalist way, which I found very pleasing. And they do have delivery right to your door, and they do have personalization, and it is 100% organic cotton. So, like, that's that's a lot of peace of mind, I think, for a lot of folks. So it's a very interesting service. I think it's a much-needed addition to the period care world. And you can get 40% off of all subscriptions if you visit mylola.com and enter Book Riot when you subscribe. Again, that's mylola.com. Enter Book Riot for 40% off all subscriptions. Let's turn to the screen where ah, yes. things book-related are always happening. Always. Just a quick note here. We're not going to spend too much time thinking about what we talked extensively about this um, myriad of possible Game of Thrones prequel series that might be in the works at one time, as, apparently as many as five were cooking. Well, much like Game of Thrones does to his own characters, uh, one is now gone. Um, <laughs> the one that was uh, written by Brian Cogman, who actually wrote, let's see, the, the episode that aired, the second, the second episode of season eight of Game of Thrones. He apparently had one that he was going to be the EP of executive producer. Not going to go decided to go in a different way. So we've answered the question that all five of them not have. I don't know if we're, if we're having sort of a um, bake-off where only one will survive or if they're going to do a couple. It would make sense to me that they are going to do one prequel series and they're trying to figure out which of these five ideas is the best one. But one officially is going, fear not, we shall not have five Game of Thrones prequels in the works. Um, also, on ongoing um, interest corner, Barack and Michelle Obama's Higher Ground production company signed a deal with Netflix and the first slate of shows um, was announced last week. Couple of notes. Let's see. I'm scrolling down here. There's one that I think is especially interesting about um, the Frederick Douglass prophet of freedom mm-hmm. uh, that David W. Blight won the 2019 Pulitzer prize in history, not biography, mind you in history, even though it's a book about Frederick Douglass. Uh, that one is going forward there too. Um, let's see. Also, show favorite, Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, Undoing Democracy. Um, that's going to be a documentary series, apparently, to portray the importance of unheralded work done by everyday heroes, guiding our government and safeguarding our nation. So those are the two that are most directly um, book-related here. I think the, the, the Frederick Douglass one will be a fascinating, a feature film adaptation, so... It's not a documentary, I don't think. I think they're going to cast someone as Frederick Douglass, um, which will certainly be a fascinating mm-hmm. story to see there. Um, let's see. A, a, a very um, interesting slate. The other ones that are American Factory, um, which is about uh, post-industrial Ohio, where a Chinese billionaire opens up a new factory. Um, Bloom is described as an upstairs-downstairs drama set in the world of fashion and post-World War to New York, um, depicts barriers faced by women and people of color in an area marked by hurdles, but also tremendous progress. That one sounds to me like, um, I'm going to use short, shorthand here, woke madmen is what it sounds like to me. A <laughs> Which we bit could there. use one of. Which we could use, definitely. Um, and then the other one is Listen to Your Vegetables and Eat Your Parents, which is a half-hour preschool series um, from the creators of Drunk History, which should be yeah. fun. As well, a, a nice, a nice, a nice lineup. Any of those especially strike you as interesting? I actually was most interested in the one you didn't mention, which is the one based on the obit column. 
where oh, I yeah, that. they're doing what, what, one based one. on obituaries. Apparently, you're going to tell like unsung everyday hero oh, stories, yeah. which is such a fascinating concept. Uh, I am though interested in Bloom and the Frederick Douglass in particular. Yeah, those are the those are the three I was most interested in. I mean, the Frederick Douglass one done well. Mm-hmm. I mean, his life story is incredible. Like. And if Netflix, that, that's one where whoever gets that title role, if it's done well, is going to be nominated for Best yeah. Actor. I'm telling you right yeah. now. I'm telling you that right now. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm-hmm. Oh, uh, it, something that actually is a documentary. Um, it's called The Pieces I Am, and it's a documentary about Toni Morrison. <laughs> Feature length. I can't even say it in full. I can't say it full vato. I have to say it socio vote. Um, and it looks like, and there's a trailer, put the link in the show notes, it's feature linked. It looks like Morrison herself is very, was very involved in the making of this, just from the footage and the, the, the narration we're getting about her life and, and work. And we've got, it looks like we've got um, uh, talking head segments from, as people you might expect. You've got Oprah, Angela Davis. I mean, she's had a wild life, and I'm so glad to see this happening. Rebecca and I have long wondered, I hope someone's out there working on the big Toni Morrison biography while, while she's still alive. I haven't heard any rumblings. I hope someone is. But at least we're getting this, where she can talk about her own life experience, bring some of the stuff out of her own personal archive. I mean, 70s-era book tours with Muhammad Ali, that's the Netflix series mm-hmm. I want right there. Toni Morrison, Muhammad Ali on, books, on book tour in the 70s right there. Also, um, has art and history and literature all wrapped into it. Uh, looks really, really good. I'm glad we're getting this here. Um, a well-done author documentary can be so great because you've got built-in narration. You've got built-in mm-hmm. text you can pull from their work and make it work that way. Um, before we get to the end, got to do one more sponsor. And then, then we're in real potpourri, Jen. We're really in potpourri after this. All right, all right. Kindle Unlimited. You can read as much as you want from Kindle Unlimited, more than you could ever want. Um, I heard a term recently that I thought was really interesting. Like, we're in the world of not infinite content, but inexhaustible content, because you could never get through everything on Netflix. If you have everything, you could start on Kindle Unlimited today and start reading, you would never get through everything you wanted to, because there's more than a million books and 5,000 audiobooks available to Kindle Unlimited. Books can be added and removed from time to time, so you're getting a constant turnover of what's available there. You can use the device with the Kindle app on any device that can sort of read or listen to audiobooks your kindle app is going to support it's in their interest to support your device for a limited time get two months of kindle unlimited for just 99 cents by visiting amazon.com slash kindle book riot so that's it go check out kindle unlimited to get started all right well you want to choose a potpourri what what of the dried flowers of a potpourri <laughs> jar do you want to do you want to f- finish out i here want to with? talk about james patterson Surprise! Yeah, let's, let's talk about, talk about James Patterson. So the recent story is that he donated $1.25 million to classroom libraries. It is part mm-hmm. of his Patterson partnership in collaboration with Scholastic Book Club. So he's giving $250 each to 4,000 teachers around the country to help purchase books. And he's also giving $500 each to 500 teachers with three years or less experience. And then Scholastic is going to match the gifts with bonus points for its book club. And there is a link uh, in the article that we're going to link to where you can apply for grants if you're a teacher. Yeah, go yeah the up. deadline go is up. July 31st. So this is a great opportunity. Uh, I, You know, 
I know. So he's also done programs where he's donated mm-hmm. uh, yearly. I think it's been going on for a while. Funds to independent booksellers, and right. I personally know several independent booksellers who have been recipients of those grants, which have been almost literal lifesavers in certain situations. Mm. I have I have such mixed feelings about this because I think, first of all, it's great. It's a great example of somebody who could be Scrooge McDuck like and go swimming in his money <laughs> in his bank vault and just you know do that whole life and he is giving back to the industry that has made him and I think that's amazing um, I get really frustrated though that the fact that this is necessary that teachers that yeah. these are going to be lifelines to teachers who don't have enough funds for their books their money for booksellers who otherwise literally don't make enough to pay rent in certain circumstances like I just is so frustrating to me that publishing and education requires initiatives like these, Mm. that this is how books get into people's hands, that this is how rent gets paid, that this is how teachers, I mean, I want them to have this money. I just wish it didn't have to come from a philanthropist who can do whatever he wants. Right. Yeah. That it takes the largest of a multi six or nine digit earner um, to do this. Yeah. Yeah, we covered the the bookseller grants on the show. We try to mention it every year so that people can go sign up. This one, I, I don't think I remember talking about this one before, but like you, we had people write and say, yeah, I won one of these or someone I know mm-hmm. did. So it's not like it's it's not like the, the actual lottery where it's like the people who win you've never heard of and there's one oh, and yeah. it feels impossible. Like there's there's stuff where you have a, a, a reasonable chance of getting this. The other one I wondered about too, and this is inside baseball stuff, interesting that it's in co- coordination with Scholastic. Yes. Which is not James Patterson's publisher, right. um, which is Hachette. Um, Scholastic, of course, it works extremely closely with schools. So maybe, I mean, it makes sense that it's Scholastic, but um, uh, it's curious that, I don't know, it's just, I noticed, I should say, that the Patterson Partnership, which I guess is a nonprofit? No, this was formed in coordination with the Scholastic Book Club, this Patterson Partnership. Um, I don't know if he's own charitable foundation that, you know, funnels money through. I don't know how all of this works. Um, but working with Scholastic to see there. Yeah, like you said, the, the one I didn't really put together was the $500 each to 500 teachers with three years or less of experience. Mm-hmm. So early career yeah. um, teachers where I've read before about people working in public schools, especially, I don't know about private schools, but the attrition in the first two or three years is considerable. Yep. Um, I think anything you can do to get people through those really difficult times when you're getting used to it, it's, a vi- it's an impossibly difficult job. And in those first three years, you're the lowest pay and have the least say over <laughs> what assignments you get and where. Anything that can be done in those early years of teaching um, will help um, people, uh, the lower career mortality for people who want to work uh, as frontline educators is what I, th- is, that's how I think about the kids, who, the, the teachers who work in public schools. You're a frontline mm-hmm. uh, educator there. Um, I don't know where I want to go. I hate talking about lost manuscripts, and yes, I guess I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know about this my, my 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 hatred of talking yeah. about lost manuscripts. I don't know. I guess. Look, this is one of those apocal documents. I am not a fan of A Clockwork Orange for all the reasons plus some you might imagine. The film or the book? Uh, or both? The, the, both. Okay. Both. I don't like the whole thing. I know they're different. Um, but I think it's notable to, to talk about there was discovered sequels wrong. It's not a sequel to A Clockwork Orange. 
um, that was unearthed in the archives of Anthony Burgess. Um, it's called The Clockwork Condition, and it wasn't—so it, it sounds like a, a, a sequel, but it's an unfinished 200-page manuscript that's sort of more of—it's more nonfiction, philosophy, manifesto— I'm not sure. I mean, it, where he develops ideas from the novel, and then it's also partly about the film version, and then other stuff about technology and culture. It sounds interesting, but it's more like a companion. Mm-hmm. It's more like a memoirish companion piece to A Clockwork Orange. I think maybe I'd be more interested in this than the the novel or film, um, because it's kind of a meta commentator commenta- uh, commentary on Kubrick's version. So I think this passes what we've called the Nazi witch library threshold, where it's interesting enough that it's, it's, it bears mentioning. And it's not just another, we found another um, uh, Bronte uh, a handwritten grocery right. list in someone's shoebox somewhere. I think this rises to the level of, this is pretty interesting. What do you think? Does this rise to the level of pretty interesting or not? I think... For the right person, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's what we're trying to do here. Not not just for us yeah, necessarily, yeah, yeah. but like for the culture. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, I think it's very interesting, you know, according to this piece, it's going to consider freedom and the individual and the impact of media on culture. And I think it is inevitably going to be very outdated. I mean, this is written in what the seventies and culture has moved yeah, on right. quite a media and culture have moved on quite a bit mm-hmm. from where we were in the seventies. But in that sense, it's an interesting sort of artifact, right? Of a time and what a admittedly very intelligent person was thinking about those things, especially somebody who came under attack for the way that his work was supposedly influencing culture and people who had seen it. So I think that, you know, from that perspective, it's interesting. Would I read it? Absolutely not. I've read A Clockwork Orange, and I think that it is a feat of language. Like, when you talk about people, (laughs) when you talk about writers like Tolkien, you know, who are obsessed with language, like Burgess Mm -hmm. is obsessed with language. And that book really showcases his ability to mess with it other than that i'm not a fan it's too violent for me it's too dark um but and i have seen the movie same same it's it's a beautifully done piece of incredibly violent cinema and so it's a very well-made thing i never want to see ever exactly uh so but but i i do think you know from a um, academic standpoint this is an interesting sort of artifact and there might be some interesting thoughts some interesting context to it it could be yeah it could be good it could be interesting from those perspectives a little um a tiktok of how this went down so um andrew biswell who's a professor um and a biographer of burgess discovered the work in the burgess archives um which you would think would have been discovered before I don't, this is one of the things I don't, and sometimes discovered use lifestyle. Maybe the archivist there knew and it was cataloged, but someone who was actually working with it. Sometimes we overlook the work that archivists and librarians mm. do in preserving these things. It probably was documented somewhere, but it could have been scattered over several boxes or, you know, like, and it took the, it took someone who was working on Burgess's work specifically to put the pieces together to contextualize and frame it as a, I don't know, afterward, to some degree, to a clockwork orange. But Burgess moved to, to Rome, uh, outside Rome um, in the 70s, and he died there. 
and the, some of the papers were abandoned, and then they were moved into the archive, um, the Burgess Foundation, which is over in Manchester in the UK, where it still is in the process of being cataloged. That's the other thing people, jerks like me forget about when I say, well, where was this before? The work of cataloging an author's life work and correspondence and drafts can take decades mm-hmm. just because there's not enough staff to do it quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the demand may not be mm-hmm. there necessarily because you don't know what you have yet. So that's, that's, you know, that's a function of time and resources, which especially in these foundations or university libraries, there may not necessarily be a fire underneath everyone to get it done as fast as humanly possible. They're, look, they're working with limited resources on their own schedule with their own constraints. So that's a all way of telling myself to calm down <laughs> about stuff getting discovered later. They're doing the best they can. People are looking. It'll come to light eventually. At least this was in the archive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it wasn't the shoebox in, the, in, the, in right. the attic where no one thought to look. Like this was in the archive and just took some time. Um, to get there, there'll be a link in the show notes there. Um, Burgess, interesting. Like it's people know Clockwork Orange and they know his name, but I think probably among the sort of 20th century books you see on lists of like the 200 greatest novels of the 20th century, that Clockwork Orange often appears there. People probably know less about him than maybe many of the other people that that appear on that mm. list. And I and I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's the difficulty of the subject matter. Um, maybe he didn't have a large corpus of work that people consider first rate. You know, it's kind of a, in the, in the modern consciousness, it's a one hit wonder. And that the film itself and that Kubrick did it, I think overshadows the novel in a lot of ways. Do you, um, but in, a strange, do guy. you know about a quest for fire? I don't. Okay. So the quest for fire is a movie that Burgess wrote and he created a like, prehistoric grunt language the 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 film is filmed entirely in this prehistoric grunt language uh the director is jean-jacques Anou. it came out in the 80s and if i'm not mistaken yep ron perlman plays the lead caveman basically basically it's a weird movie it is the weirdest movie i still don't even remember why i watched it in the first place um but but yeah and he burgess worked on this and that's the kind of person that he was so like tolkien's (laughs) off creating you know norse and germanic inspired you know elf languages super filigree very elaborate (laughs) complicated and burgess is like you know what i want to write is the grunt language of the early humans. That's what I want to write. Like, that's that's the kind of person that Anthony Burgess was. <laughs> you know that thing people do when they just sort of imitate cavemen um, grossly? I'm going to... Let's yeah. do that. Let's do a movie of that and see if we can figure this yeah. thing out. Uh, fascinating. Yeah. Jen, I think that's our show. We've been talking a long time here. We got down some rabbit holes. We're talking about grunt languages in the 80s Ron Perlman movie. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Uh, Jen, thanks so much. No, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I don't think Rebecca and I would have been in the same go. place, so it's good. That's, that's why we have different people on from time to time. Jen, thank you so much. As always, you can find show notes to this and every episode of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. If you want to shoot us an email, you always can, podcast at bookriot.com. Especially want to know about, I guess we want to know about logistics, about moving books around. That's what we want to know, especially about if you've got um, insight, opinions, reactions, consequences of Baker and Taylor's whole uh, retail wholesale business going away that we haven't thought about. 
love to know that. Jen, we'll have you again before too long, huh? Deal? Thank you so much. It's a deal.